Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Sunday, May 23rd. A hot day. Hot, super hot, hot. Hotter than usual. I was just in the car. I said 93. 20 degrees above normal. Is that right? Is it 23 above normal? Yeah. We're yeah. supposed to be in the 70s. We're in like the 90s. Yeah, we are in the 90s. It's, it's nutty. It is nutty. Uh, but it's supposed to cool down. Coming up on Sorry. Memorial Day weekend. Next weekend. Yahoo! Sadie will come by. Summer, the unofficial start to summer. That's right. But we feel like we're already in summer. 92 degrees will do it. Yeah. I was just out weeding. Really? How'd that go? It was sweaty work. Did you get any poison? I'm not even moving that much when I'm weeding. I'm just doing dig a little, dig a little, dig a little. You got any poison ivy? It's usually poison ivy with you. No, I'm staying away from the poison ivy. Yes, you could get poison ivy if it was half a mile away. Lesser celandine. What does that mean? It's the evil that I'm digging up. Is that a weed? It is a weed. It is an aggressive Weed. Tell me if I'm wrong, but didn't we just engage a sophisticated, high-priced uh, eliminator of, of weeds? Do we have a weed program going on here? Yes, but not in the flower beds. In, I see. in the beds. I see. Okay. You need to do it carefully. I see. Okay. By hand. Mm. Well, you're the right girl for the job. There's no question. Um, but you know what? What? The celandine was clever enough. To be growing under a holly tree. Mmm. 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 So when I sit down to do the weeding, I get holly leaf prickles in my butt. Better that than poison ivy. Painful. You'll get over it. Those weeds are clever. Yeah, they are. Very sad. Genius weeds. So we took a little bit of a detour from our standby shows that we watch out here in Pennsylvania, which are Call My Agent and Borgen. We tried something new, which is Hacks, which is a new comedy, HBO Max, and uh, Gene Smart's in it. We all like Gene Smart. Uh, Gene Smart's good. She's always good. Uh, she's got a range of stuff. And in this, she plays a, an experienced comic uh, who is, uh, I guess, a little bit considered uh, long in the tooth, and her appeal in Vegas is diminishing. And it is somebody's uh, great idea that she should get an assist from an aspiring comedy writer who has a ways to go, who's, who is played by a woman named Hannah Heinbinder. Who is young. Who is young, very young. Hannah Heinbinder, who, as you told me, is the daughter of Lorraine Newman, who was in the original Saturday Night Live cast. And it turns yes. out her father was a writer Here of Saturday Night Live. in the family business. Exactly right. And uh, what did you think? Jury is out. Jury is out. I know you're telling me it's comedy. I can't say I laughed yeah. that much. Mm. Um, so, jury is out. Yeah, jury's out with me too. It's. Uh, I think the Gene Smart character works. I think the younger writer doesn't work so well. Hmm. Uh, and uh, and more to the point, it's not particularly funny. Although I will confess, I never found Lorraine Newman funny. So. Uh, ooh, yeah. ooh, shots fired. Well, what can I say? She was uh, with some talented people. Right, don't, don't, yeah, all right. Some talented people. It was tough competition. Um, but in any event, that has nothing to do with Hannah Heinbinder. Uh, maybe it's so the part. So you have nothing to recommend. So you brought up this whole show so you can tell people. Yeah, the jury's yeah. out. Jury's yeah. out. Jury's out doesn't mean that the jury's got a negative vote. It means the jury's out. No, but, you, but you're kind of saying nothing. It was written up uh, as a very, po- very positive write-up. Oh, so you mean the, the people who are making it have a PR department? Yes, that's oh, what it means. Oh, wow, look uh, at that. All right, I can see you're in that kind of movie. You're a little bit... Uh, once you do a little weeding, you can tend to be a little on the cynical side. 
All right, speaking of the cynical side, this will feed your cynical side. Here's a bulletin. The Times has an article with the provocative question, is BMI a scam? That's literally the way they put it. I certainly hope so. (laughs) So BMI is body mass index. It's based on a formula involving your weight and your height, and they square your height in meters and divide it into the uh, amount of your weight, probably in stones for all I know, and it comes up with a number and basically says everybody's obese. That's always been the deal. Yeah. Everybody's obese. Um, so so your insurance company can give you uh, more expensive rates. I think it's, that's the uh, only reason I ever saw for BMI. So in any event, the, the Times does uh, Times analysis. Times caught on to this? Times says yes. It turns out, yes, BMI, while it has some vague value in terms of dealing with large populations, it is by no means a reasonably good predictor of a person's health. It doesn't tell you very much of a person's health. Uh, so the idea that someone comes up with a high BMI is just uh, inconsequential. Uh, and uh, they come up with a couple of other things to look at to see if you're overweight or whatever. But there's, you know, they don't get in the spirit of that. They're just debunking BMI. And, and no one really is staunchly defending BMI. And yet... It's used, but it's good because uh, it's nice because we've all been called overweight from BMI. There's not a single person I know, I'm sure, who is not obese by by virtue of the BMI statistic. Oh, I can do that with you. You got to do the math before you come up with that. It's uh, they, they did say one thing that was kind of interesting. They asked some guy, some doctor who's a researcher in weight. He says, you know, the way you determine your appropriate weight is you 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 find out what your weight is when you've adopted. Uh, the most in the way of healthy living habits that you're comfortable with. And uh, you do that, and then you see what your weight is. That's your ideal weight. It's very subjective. Well, it's totally subjective, but it's probably right. I mean, you can't, you're not going to come, there's no point in pursuing weight that you're not comfortable with. It's going to undermine your lifestyle. On the other hand, it's reasonable. Uh, That's the way you do it. It's sort of a, a bottom-up for uh, number as opposed to a top-down number on an, an insurance chart. So, in any event, we thought we'd do everybody a favor until you don't worry about BMI anymore. The other thing that you don't have to worry about is if you have a kid at Stanford uh, who was in one of the uh, sports that was eliminated. This has been a, a story for some time, some months. Stanford was going to eliminate 11 sports or maybe even more. And they're not revenue-producing sports. They're things like uh, wrestling and uh, men's lightweight crew, or maybe all men's crew and women's lightweight crew and uh, fencing, that kind of stuff. And uh, they said they want they were going to eliminate it because it would save them $8 million. Now, someone uh, figured out, uh, maybe everybody realizes this immediately, that $8 million is nothing. Stanford, Stanford. Nothing. It was somebody, there was a colorful quote that said, $8 million is what you know, people Stanford look for in the uh, cushions of the couch, basically. It's, uh, it's inconsequential. And no one could figure out why they were driven to do this. And, and it resulted in a lot of objections from the students, athletes themselves. Uh, they were threatened with lawsuits, uh, both Title IX, because it didn't add upright in terms of eliminating women's programs or not eliminating... And, you know, enough men's programs, whatever it was. You can't, you can't do that right, no matter what you do. Uh, and also, um, there was a theory that uh, when people recruited to Stanford, they were told there was a team, so when so Stanford can't get rid of a team, they're bound by that promise, which I can tell you, what it, that's what's called a losing lawsuit. But in any event, Stanford is now uh, 
uh, they're an about face. They reverse field uh, in part, large part probably, because we discussed this some 10 months ago and came out against it. So I think that's the biggest thing that sort of turned things around. Uh, our discussion. Our discussion. Okay. And the other thing is that uh, the alumni associated with the various sports stepped up and increased their funding and contributions. And Stanford found that, lo and behold, uh, these, these sports under these circumstances are almost uh, self-supporting. But that's the way they get people to do that. Yeah, that by threatening they, the, they threaten yeah. to shut it down, yeah. and then uh, people come forward and support it. Yeah, but they did. But if they, you know, I, I understand. But they did uh, manage to collect a lot of bad publicity and bad feelings. Uh, so uh, they, no, I think it's uh, they rude. can deal with it. I think it's rude. You, th- you think it's rude? Uh, All right, just shut sports down. Yeah. Um, well, the other thing I have is sports. Maybe you should talk about the museum thing first before I talk about the sports thing. Oh, really? Yeah, All yeah. of a sudden, you think I can just pull a museum update out of my hat? Your hat was a good word, yes. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, yeah, I get tired of hearing myself talk sometimes. Well, um, let's, let's hear you talk. This week, yeah. the New York Times had their big uh, museum. Section. Um, they had a whole section of newspaper. Yeah, which is mainly enormous ads. Yeah. For museum exhibitions and, and a couple of articles. But, you know, it tells you what's going on yeah. around the country, sometimes around the world. And uh, there's a, you know, there's a, currently out at the Getty, there's oh. a, an exhibition on Mesopotamia. I've been to the Getty. Um, you, you've been to... We didn't go to the Getty? We, In we LA? We to the Getty, but the Getty has various um, locations. Oh, really? The villa, the center, oh. and so on and so forth. Anyway... Um, Mesopotamia, you know, uh, Sumer, Sumer is uh, the beginning of everything. Okay, beginning of civilization. It really is the I cradle. Mean, I think it's the cradle of civilization. Well, the, it's the cradle of civilization. But the, uh, you know, in Mesopotamia, you know, they uh, invented the wheel. They invented history. They invented, you know, uh, yeah. base sixty, which is always. With favorite. clocks, time? yes. How, how we tell time ah. is based on that. I mean, they, I really they came up with that. Pretty invented good. everything. Yeah. You know, the list goes on and on and on. So it's fun to see their art. Yeah. And uh, so that would be fun to see. Yeah. Um, no doubt about that. Uh, but also at the Met, the Met is uh, promoting a couple of things. There's the Alice Neal show we talked about a few weeks ago, um, which would be great to see. Uh, but uh, then there's also. A uh, show on the Medici portraits and politics, fifteen twelve. Yeah, I saw something about this. I saw some portrait advertising it. Yeah. Uh, Perhaps yeah. this one by Bronzino. No, I saw Young a different man. one. Maybe I, maybe it was in the journal. Where did no? I see that? In one. I of, don't know. You tell me. In one of the. Uh, I don't know somebody drinking a cup of wine, uh, like a pope was drinking a cup of wine. Uh, okay. You got me there. Um, uh, oh no, I'm not thinking of the Medici's. I'm thinking of who's that family? That's the bad family, you know. The Borgias. The Borgias, yeah. I think the bad family. The bad family. Medici, you know, were not pure as the driven but snow. Were, there, were the Medici's had any popes? Because the Borgias had two. Oh, popes. The, the Medici's have popes. Yes, indeed. There's <laughs> a bear. There's a bear Catholic. What, oh what is, my goodness! The Medici were always trying to rule uh, Florence. Yeah. Okay, and they would get exiled or thrown out, and they, you know, Florence would go into the toilet, and they'd come back, and so on and so forth. So anyway, um, these are some great uh, Renaissance portraits, mm. and uh, the uh, 
Necropolitan likes to make the point that the Renaissance was not just a time of great art. It was, you know, especially uh, amongst the um, Medici and Florence, it was a time of assassination, rebellion, machination, you know. Great. Great nicknames. I mean, you know, you know some of the, like Lorenzo the Magnificent, but uh, um, his father's nickname his, was Piero the Gouty. Okay. Um and his son's nickname was Piero uh, the Unfortunate. Anyway, there's all these great portraits by Bronzino yeah. um, and Pontormo, uh, etc. And, uh, you know, it made me think of... Um, there, there's a, they also show a little uh, bust. Not a little bust, but uh, a bust of a Medici. Is it a Medici? It must be a Medici uh, because that's a Cosimo. It's Cosimo. Um, by Benvenuto Cellini, mm. which reminded me mm. that I recently read um, an article about Benvenuto Cellini. As one and does, yes. Yes. Uh, uh, you know Benvenuto Cellini. I mean, who doesn't know Benvenuto? He, he's famous for his autobiography. He was a, a sculptor, mm. uh, in, again, born in Florence, etc., got around. Anyway, the title of the article was the Renaissance's greatest scoundrel. Mm. I mean, we talked about what a bad boy Caravaggio was yeah. uh, for the Baroque period a little bit late, later, but uh, Benvenuto Cellini, who was born in 1500 and uh, trained as a goldsmith, but then he, you know, he's doing sculpture. He's, he does, uh, oh, I know which uh, piece you might know, the famous salt cellar of François Premier in, um, we saw it in Vienna. Okay, it's a big like gold dish with the, uh, you know, um, what's his name? The uh, Neptune lounging back mm-hmm. to hold the salt and uh, his uh, consort holding the mm-hmm. pepper. Your visual memory might be more acute than mine. It's a big thing, Daniel. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we saw it at the Kunsthistorisches Museum. Okay. It, was, it was a big case. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's a famous, famous piece. Uh, but we don't have much that was done by him. It apparently was mostly melted down, except for, he worked for the Medici a lot, mm-hmm. okay, a lot. And he was buddies with one of the Medici popes. In fact, when the sack of Rome is going on, he's helping to save the pope in the castle uh, San Angelo. And he says, you know, and I think I was even better at, um, you know, uh, shooting people down than, um, you know, than I am at art. And how did he do saving the Pope? Did he save the Pope? He, yeah, the Pope uh, was saved. The Pope uh, encouraged him. He said, you know what we got to do? We got to melt down all the jewels. We got to take all the... Um, the gold, right. The gems right. out of the papal jewels, melt down the gold so the enemy can't get it or something like that. And a few Popes later, um, poor uh, Cellini is um, kind of dragged into jail and uh, uh, accused of stealing the Pope's oh, really? jewelry. That's yes, rough. so that was complicated. But, you know, uh, another... Um, somebody else gets him out of jail. Uh, anyway, he was constantly killing people. <laughs> he was constantly... He would have a feud with some other goldsmith. Boom! He's dead. And then he'd get, um, you know, excused or yeah. exonerated uh, by a Pope or, or someone else. And, you know, he'd move on. He'd run away for, for a while and come back and, yeah. uh, boom, kill somebody else. Somebody says something mean to his brother. Boom! He's dead. Um, so, uh, he was really out of control, but, you know, uh, throughout history, uh, he becomes, uh, much 
much beloved. Uh, people are wild about him, including uh, uh, Lord Byron, Oscar Wilde. Um, anyway, in, in, lots of times in an old library, you see a copy of uh, My Life, the autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini. I just thought it was a well-known, prevalent book. Turns out it doesn't even get published. You know, he, he was living in the 16th century, mm -hmm. like 1500 to the 1570s. He doesn't get published till 17, till the 1720s. Mm. People pretty much forget about it. You know who goes nuts about it? Goethe. Really? Goethe goes crazy about it, does a translation, and then it takes off. And you have people, Lord Byron loves it, Oscar Wilde loves it. You know, people think, because he's such a, you know, crazy, over-the-top character. Um, anyway, he was part of this whole, uh, you know, Medici lifestyle. Um, and, uh, you know, that would be a fun uh, well, I have a, exhibition. My only Goethe see. story is uh, Walter Kaufman, our, the philosophy professor that we both had in college. One of my greatest professors. Right. I just adored him. But what he told us, our class at one point, I took it the year before you did, was that when he was growing up, this shows you how different people are brought up in different generations. He was given one for his birthday, a calendar, which had every day a different quote from Goethe. Okay, well, he probably had like a German family, yes, right? He, 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 Am yes, I right? Yes, he had a German family. But, but even so... That uh -huh. you know, we were. I was getting like baseball gloves. You know, I you know, I wasn't getting right. a, a right. calendar with Goethe right. quotes. Right. So he knew quite a bit about Goethe. We well, talked. His about, father may have been more interested in Goethe than baseball. It, there is that risk, yes. Yeah. But speaking of baseball, unless I'm, I don't want to cut you off, was there more? Only that uh, the one of the other remaining works of art uh, from Cellini is the uh, Perseus holding the head of Medusa, mm -hmm. and you remember Medusa. I know what Medusa is, yes. You look at her and you right. turn, turn to stone. Turn to stone, yeah. Right. No, I'm on to that. Right. Yeah. Perseus, Perseus manages by doing it with a reflection and his right. shield. Yes. Comes and once you beheaded so, Medusa, anyway, that doesn't work anymore. He makes one of those for the uh, Medici, of course, yes. Commission for the Medici, and installs it in the Loggia dei Lanzi right across from Michelangelo's David, yeah. okay, which is in stone. Okay, mm. And the way he installs it, Medusa's face is looking towards... David, right. you know, so it's as if to say that, uh, you know, Cellini has uh, turned oh. Michelangelo to stone, surpassed the oh, master. Okay, well, that's interesting. Um, okay, I have nothing that dramatic, except there was another no-hitter uh, in the major leagues. This is six in the month of May, and it's gotten to the point, uh, you know, this is by Corey Kluber of the Yankees. Uh, it's out of control. It, yeah, there's a lot of no-hitters. Uh, I say move the mound. Uh, okay, you might be right. Uh, but the, the question is, uh, why? Uh, why are there the, all these no-hitters? And it is uh, record-breaking in terms of, uh, we're on a record piece to see the most no-hitters. Um, and, you know, why? It's because no one can hit. <laughs> I mean, uh, through May 19th, teams were averaging 7.82 hits per game. That's the second lowest mark in baseball history behind 1908. Eight. I'm not going to do a lot of math here, but I'm going to guess that uh, that was uh, more than 100 years ago. Um, fewest hits per game. I mean, why there's no hitting. This, why, what's wrong with these kids? Uh, and batters are you know hitting a record low 236. Scoring is down significantly. Well, you know, part of it they say is it is defensive positioning, but that's not really it. You know, um, the pitchers are doing well, and that's why they talk about moving the mound back. But the other thing is. 
everybody changed to this notion of home runs are the way to go. So everybody's swinging for home runs, and even right. lesser players are hitting home runs, which was aided supposedly by a juiced baseball. Um, so what they did last year is they deadened the baseball over the offseason. And uh, it's wound not as tight as it was. It doesn't travel as far as it did before. So they said, well, this will help spice the game up because, you know, before it was just about strikeouts and home runs. But now we're going to change things because we unjuice the baseball. Well, they unjuice it a little more than they intended. They're getting a lot yeah, fewer home sounds runs. Like they completely turned the faucet but, off. But they didn't do anything about the strikeouts. So between the strikeouts and the home runs, the strikeouts were the real problem, not the home runs. Now, the, the deal is they, they're kind of related in that. People try to hit a home run every time a tennis strike out. So you're kind of unpacking that, if you will. But the point is there's going to be an adjustment period. So what you have is you have players who were hitting balls that were going out of the park last year who are hitting balls that are now fly ball outs. Mm-hmm. And they're still striking out. They haven't changed their style. They didn't. They said they're learning that that's not a home run anymore. Mm-hmm. So now you're getting the worst of all worlds. You're losing the home runs, but you're still going to have people swinging the fences because they had no adjustment period. They didn't know this was coming about. So the result is that teams can't hit. And you watch these games, and it's strikeout after strikeout after strikeout, uh, fewer hits, fewer runs. They found a way to make baseball more boring, basically. Uh, so uh, genius at work. Uh, what can I say? Um, uh, so, um, you know, I, I don't think it was even necessary to make it more boring. I think it's right up there. I think you want to make it as boring as possible. You know, I think it is. It's a test of character, Tamsin. Any, any adult, anybody can get excited watching a basketball game. It's a game that's too easy. It's, uh, they score anyway. They kid around when they score basketball. You have anything else to talk about? I'm just telling you. Baseball is a test for the intellect. It's not for instant gratification. You know, it's not for the millennials. Okay? Am I done with that subject? I think so. All right, here's something that's right up there with BMI, okay? Uh, Urban legend. Odometer tampering. That's the kind of thing that you would hear, I would hear from my father. You know what some people do? They work on turning back the odometer. You got to watch that when you buy a used car. Because it looks like it's got 40,000 miles. It's probably gone 80,000 miles. I said, who would do that? And people do it. You know, give it the... Uh, well, that I have happens. a funny story about it. Do you really? Tampering. Go ahead. Yes. Um, years ago. Yeah. A zillion years ago. Um, we were young and having car issues. Yeah. Uh, I borrowed my sister's car. Yeah. For like a week. Um, and uh, then returned it to yeah. her. You know. All right. And she called me up in a rage. Yeah. She said, what did you do to my odometer? She said, all of a sudden, it's reading like a thousand more uh, miles than I've ever driven. Okay. This is going to ruin the value of the car. Why did you do that? And I'm like, I just drive a lot. Oh, that's the that's the story. I drive a lot. <laughs> that is the story. I mean, who would ever assume that somebody would increase the mileage mm-hmm. on the the odometer? Thought, she know, couldn't believe that I I actually drove that much. Well, I can in believe one it. Week. You know, I, the only story I know about odometers, I remember. I watching, do drive a lot. I still I well, I don't drive a lot now, but it's a murder mystery in which somebody had driven someplace and there was a record on the odometer. Did they use that car or not? And they said no, the odometer didn't change. Turns out they drove in reverse. So if you ever want to commit a murder and you know do something like that. But here, here's the deal with odometers. Uh, it turns out uh, my father wasn't entirely wrong. There is a history of people fooling around with odometers. And uh, they got all kinds of numbers here. But what it really comes down to is about 1% of all cars 
maybe even less than that. Um, now, 1% according to their numbers. 450,000 out of 45, 40 million cars sold each year used have uh, tamper odometers. It's, so it's not totally inconsequential. I thought it was it didn't happen at all. Now, it used to be uh, that uh, that was done mechanically. Uh, now it can't be. Everything's done by computer. Um, but there are ways to do it by computer. Uh, apparently, you can, uh, but by the way, it's illegal to do this. But uh, you can get on the web and you can find services. They say, take the unit out, send it to us, and we'll come back and it will be changed. And then they have a, a disclaimer. We require that all customers seeking mileage correction services have a legitimate reason. Because it's illegal to alter your car's right. mileage. So what is the legitimate reason? There is no legitimate reason. They're just telling you this. But I need some sample ones, so if I have to have it done, I can come up with something good. No one's asking for the legitimate. It's obviously the kind of business that shouldn't exist. So, But the Times also uh, tracks down. Um, they say even beyond that, sometimes you can get on, you can get on the web and, find, and buy something that you can do this yourself. You don't have to do anything as crazy as sending it in. You do it yourself. So the Times, in, in their... You know, in their capacity as being a service provider, starts helping you choose which odometer tampering thing to use. And they say, here's one that looks economically priced. It's $120. That sounds reasonable. So let's do it. And they do it. And they buy it. And they say, uh, it didn't work. It didn't work. So their motto is that if you're going to break the law with an odometer trans, uh, tampering device, uh, Call the expert. No, spend more. I don't go for the cheap model. That's their advice. Uh and, and they say also they imply that if, if the um, if the car makers really wanted to put a stop to this they could in terms of encryption, but they point out that a lot of odometer tampering has to do with leasing of cars because you pay uh, for riding driving the car too much. Mm-hmm. So you might say, gee, well the the car makers get stiffed by that because people are on a lease plan and they claim to have not driven it too much. Uh, they do get stiffed a little bit, but. Um, if the odometer is tampered with and the lesser mileage is shown, ultimately the car manufacturers benefit because they sell those cars after three years. And now they have a lower odometer number, so maybe they're benefited by the tampering. So in any event, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. So keep that in mind. I don't know that you can do much about it. Um, there's also a, um, a book that got a lot of attention. Uh, feel free to jump in with any book you're reading that you'd like to comment on. A book that got a lot of attention called Shape by Jordan Ellenberg, The Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else, that both the Times and the Wall Street Journal uh, are excited about. Is this shape by who? Jordan Ellenberg. Ellenberg? Yes, okay. and they say he's a very lucid writer and, and talking about mathematics, etc. Um, which is all good. It, it's... Uh, the journal was a little more interesting because they focused on what uh, the book says about Abraham Lincoln. Apparently, Abraham Lincoln was a big uh, fan of geometry. Uh, so much so that apparently when he started his legal studies, he was dissatisfied with his uh, ability as an advocate. And in order to sharpen those abilities, uh, sharpen his ability to demonstrate things by argument, he went back to Euclid and studied Euclid's geometry. Because I find that so weird. It's impossible to believe. But he said, yeah, according- by doing a proof. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, the the article also points out that people, you know, either love geometry or they hate it. Everybody has a reaction. Yeah, I, I love geometry, but I never. Is it really true that by constructing a mathematical proof, 
It gives you hints about how to. This is what this is what they say. Lincoln said to himself, "This is Abraham Lincoln said to himself, Lincoln, you can never make a lawyer if you don't understand what demonstrate means." And I left my situation in Springfield, went home to my father's house, and stayed there till I could give any propositions in the six book, six books of Euclid at sight. He practiced proofs. I look. I, I, what can I say? I, I can't imagine anybody doing that. It shows a lot of intellectual conscience and curiosity beyond any I've seen before. Um, I can't imagine that it really. It must have taught him something. Yeah, I'm not sure it really. He did pretty well, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, look, I, I, I can't say. I don't get it. But uh, Jordan Ellenberg, uh, as written up by the, the Times, uh, the focus is more on shapes, which of course is part of geometry, not the proof part. And Ellenberg uh, says that shapes, uh, there's something in our brain that recognizes spatial relations and shapes coming out of the womb. And that's the source of geometry. We see relationships. And he says, if you uh, put certain shapes in front of a, almost a newborn, and uh, two or three or the, two are identical, and the third one's different or facing the other way, the newborn will catch on to it and react in some way right away. So, of course, uh, the woman who's reviewing the book for Parul Seagal uh, does that with her child, and it doesn't work. Another fail. <laughs> another fail for the Times. Well, no, it just means her, her kid, kids uh, yeah, got issues. Got issues. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, but you said you were thinking of reading that book. I am thinking of reading it, but uh, but the only sad thing about it, I read both articles, um, and they're positive, but they didn't convey anything about geometry or math or what he's doing with it, which makes me a little concerned that they didn't really get anything out of it. Oh. That, that they they like the subject. It's a cute thing to talk about, but, you know, yeah. I don't know. So I don't know. I, I've never been a big geometry fan, but I understand its value. And I would be in the category of people who are more comfortable with other types of mathematics. But uh, Yeah, because nobody's less able at recognizing shapes than you. I, I have a problem with spatial relations. Yes, you, know. you do. <laughs> uh, that's right. Uh, okay. So finally, you know, we, here's something we both looked at. It's an article on magic. Now, we don't talk about magic uh, nearly enough. Uh, or well, not now much you're at just all. being silly. Okay, we don't I'm talk about magic. I'm not remotely. I'm not interested either. But I will. T- you have to give props to the Times when they write an interesting story. I mean, this is in the style section. I can't tell you the last time I saw something worth reading in the style section. It's yeah. almost like it, it's impossible, right? And yet they have an article about a fellow named David Burglass, 94 years old, who apparently was a great veteran musician. Still with us, English. Ma- musician? No, I'm sorry. Magician. 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 And they give you a little bit insight into magic. It's a very nice article. Very interesting. And they say that, uh, they, they say the classic card trick, and talking about card tricks here, is called the ACAN, the A-C-A-A-N. People in the biz know what that is. It's any card at any number. You read this? Yes. Yeah. So the way this works is, you have two spectators. You're a magician. You're putting on an act. And you have one name a card. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's like a four of clubs. And the other name and number. Pick a number. And they mm-hmm. say like 35. And the magician ends up with a deck of cards. And they count out 35. And it's the number, what did I say, four of clubs or something like that, that, that the, the other person named. Okay? Is the... Yeah. So the, the person A says... fourth yeah, card in the deck. In the first, third okay. part of the deck. Okay. So person A says so four of clubs, person B says 35, he counts out 35, and it's the four of clubs. Got it. So um, what well, seems pretty amazing, and uh, but, you know, it's magic and there are tricks. And the guy writing the article, David Siegel, says, you know, 
There are a billion variations on this theme. Almost any magician who does card tricks does an ACAA. All right. But what's common about all of them is at one point, the magician handles the cards. He doesn't say anymore, but the implication is if the magician handles the cards, there's a way to identify the card and put it in the right place so you get yeah. it. You have an idea. You have a path. David Burglass is famous, and he says properly so, because he did an ACAAN in which he never handles the cards, and nobody can figure out how he did it. Mm-hmm. And when he says nobody, he means he's talked to other magicians, right, and no one can tell. And he has stories here I won't go into about other magicians who talk about their encounters with David Burglass in which he never handles the cards and he comes up with a card. Because theoretically there would be ways to do it, if you're, especially if you're in a crowd. Okay? Right. If you're in a group situation, right. somebody can play the stooge. Somebody That's another way of doing hit, it. Okay? Yeah. But these other magicians talk about being alone with him yeah. where there's no possibility mm-hmm. of him doing anything like that. Right, right. So this fellow, and so this all builds up in this story. So this guy, David Seagal, visits uh, Burglass. Burglass, again, is 94 years old. And he says to him, I was wondering if you do, would do a trick for me, your famous ACAAN, um, because, you know, I know it's just amazing. And Burglass gets ticked off. He says, I'm 94 years old. I stopped performing 20 years ago. You have a lot of nerve asking me to perform for you, right? And he mm-hmm. gives him a hard time. Seagull calms the guy down. And, uh, and Burglar says, well, look, if you were doing the trick, what would you, what, what numbers and what card would you say? And he gives him a, a number like the uh, seven of diamonds and his number is 44. He says, okay, that's interesting. I like to ask people that just to see how serious they are about wanting to see the trick. He says, yeah, I've thought about this. Seven of diamonds, 44, great. And uh, Seagull calms him down. He calms him down because he says, you know, I talked to, the reason I'm pressing you is because I, I have been friends with Stephen Cohen, who I know you have a high regard for. He's a magician who's still performing in London. And he talks about a great encounter. With okay, so then Burgos says, uh, uh, all right, all right, you're right. Steve Cohen's a nice guy. Maybe I overreacted. He says, look, um, I tell you what, open the drawer over there. There are some cards I haven't looked at for a long time because I'm not in this business anymore. He opens the drawer. <laughs> he says, take out the middle pack of cards. Uh, he gets, and then he hands them to, uh, well, he doesn't even hand them to Burglar. He says, take out the middle pack of cards. He says, look, uh, I'm telling you, I'm way out of this, but uh, maybe I can get close. Uh, why don't you count to, uh, to the 44th card? Let's see, it's at the Seven of Diamonds. And he starts turning over the card, Siegel. One, two, three, four, and the tension's building, and the card's not coming up. Okay, waiting for 44. At the 43rd card, seven of diamonds. And Burglass goes, jeez, missed, missed. He's hoping for 44. And <laughs> this guy says, uh, I'm sitting there stunned. I'm stunned. Um, and I don't know what's going on. He says, and, and so I went and I talked to another magician friend of mine. Is there something about dazzling sleight of hand? And his friend says, no, this guy is an amazing psychologist. He knows, he's, he, as he puts it, burglars messes with minds, not decks. 
He kind of, all this was a setup in part, he believes, the idea that he wouldn't do it, the idea it wasn't a question, the idea that he was insulted, the idea that he couldn't possibly get it right. It's all a way of building the suspense and making it that much on, less likely that he's going to succeed. Even coming close and not getting it sort of adds to the situation. And yet we don't know how he did it. So, uh... He still got it. He still got it, and uh, I thought it was a nice story. What can I say? So we end on a little bit of magic, and uh, next week... What was that guy's name again? Burglass? David Burglass, David yes. Burglass. Yes. So next week, next week, Memorial Day, right? Right? Right. Here, you and me, maybe Sadie. <laughs> and maybe even more. Oh, well, we, we won't get into that. All right? Uh, all right, so... Uh, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. Let Tamsin and Dan read the paper again next week, I hope. Yep, Bye. see ya.